Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. prom party hello this is our second attempt at this episode because it was too damn hot yesterday (laughs) so we couldn't think straight and didn't get far enough to enter our thoughts to do it that is very true and (laughs) prom party i have a confession that i need to make yeah before we started this recording harmony and i watched the wild wild west video and it is on repeat in my brain right now. Fucking banger. Anytime I'm not speaking, I need you to just imagine that there is just a little hamster wheel going that's just being like straight to the wild, wild west just over and over again because I can't make it leave. It's fucking perfect, which is even funnier because it auto-played that on YouTube mm-hmm. following Deepest Bluest <laughs> by LL Cool J because, you know, Shark Week. And... uh <laughs> God, Deep Blue Blue is fun. Wild Wild West is fucking perfect. It had an advantage because it's like a Stevie Wonder beat. So like, okay, maybe that's a little unfair. But I'm legitimately of the faith that, yeah, is Wild Wild West, the movie, objectively bad? Sure. But I physically can't comprehend why people don't think it's the most fun shit possible. Because <laughs> it is. It is a pretty fun movie. I'm going to be real. As, as silly and ridiculous as it is. It's pretty damn fun. Yeah. And I think that's why at the AMC theaters, you get to be blessed by Selma Hayek, specifically from Wild Wild West, on all of like the giant collage advertisements of actors. Yeah, not any of her more like acclaimed or respected films. No, Wild Wild West. Not like Frida or, (laughs) God forbid, like her sexiest performance in From Dusk Till Dawn. No, Wild Wild West. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, it's pretty perfect. Big fan. Big fan. But this is, unfortunately, I guess for some people, this is not a Wild Wild West podcast. Why is this week. not a Wild Wild West podcast? <laughs> Why? That... What have we been doing for the last 47 weeks? I know we messed up, clearly. Fuck! <laughs> this week, though, we honestly kind of threw the schedule out the window. Yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, I am neurotic and We've had pretty much our entire year scheduled out for like the last three months. Yeah, I think November has a couple openings, but basically for the rest of the year, the entire schedule is is pretty pre-planned. Yeah, and yeah. we threw that schedule out for this week because every once in a while, a new release will come out that is 
so important and just kind of infests our brains to the point where we have to talk about it or we're going to explode, Mm -hmm. that's one of those weeks. Yeah. Harmony, what movie are we talking about this week? Today we are talking about Fear Street 1994. Yes, yes we are. And I am so excited to talk about this movie. I can tell you're you're so giddy. You're way more excited than the like 20 minutes we recorded yesterday where we were both just like, dude, I can't even fucking think. Yeah, it I'm was so very, hot. very hot. <laughs> Climate change is real. And for those who are denying, you are more than welcome to visit our apartment and then suffocate in the sweltering heat because it's that bad. <laughs> my, my poor basil plant is just hemorrhaging leaves. Yeah, he's real crunchy. <laughs> yeah, and he's watered. I I don't know. He's uh, Basil's a dramatic plant to begin with, yeah, so that's very whatever. True. Basil, but yeah, it's miserable. Basil is like the huskies of plants. Just dramatic. So they go like, <laughs> like that. That's what basil does yes. as a plant. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Sarah fears that. Christ, not you too. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun? So there are a number of reasons as to why we wanted to cover this movie. And as with any new release, it does sort of change the format of our show a little bit. So if this is your first time joining us, uh, we typically will talk about the culture and what was popular at the time of the film's release. We're not going to do that for this episode because... Our, our theme song is lying. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> because, uh, you know, this movie came out a couple weeks ago, so it feels redundant to talk about it. Um, and we also then would typically ask Harmony, what did you know about this movie? Or had you heard of it? What was your experience with this movie before recording this episode? And... Obviously, it's a new release, so we don't have that. I, I mean, the the hype that everyone had for this, I was unaware of. Okay. I don't, I don't follow things. It's <laughs> fine. Well, the one thing that I can ask you, though, is that Fear Street 1994 is based on a collection of books by R.L. Stein. Mm-hmm. What experience or knowledge did you have of the books? None... None at all? Like, you didn't know they existed? No, I I didn't. Okay, so as far as Goosebumps is concerned, I'm aware of, like, the original series of Goosebumps, but not from the books, but because that was the basis for the TV show. Mm-hmm. But the actual Goosebumps books that I did read from the library were the Give Yourself Goosebumps books. Okay. Because they are choose-your-own-adventure. And I... Uh, even at the ripe old age of 30, all the way back to but a wee child, I have never enjoyed reading fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't have the attention span for it. I just don't get invested in it. I do read. I just don't read far fun. I, I don't read stories for fun. Mm-hmm. That That's not how I choose to digest my media. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, when it's choose your own adventure, I'm I'm a little more of an active player. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm participating rather than just kind of going along for a ride. So you like it more when the books feel like a dialogue than a monologue, basically. Okay. And I, I I mean I probably shouldn't be sitting here being like, oh well, I like to be an active participant when we're on movie podcast and you don't participate in a movie. <laughs> but a movie is at most typically three hours. A book is for someone who's like me who's never been a fast reader because I don't read books that often. 
uh, I don't know, like a good size, like an adult novel would take me like 16 hours or something. Mm-hmm. 10, 12, 16 hours. That's too damn long. Okay. I can watch so much other stuff in that time. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of an enigma when it comes to this sort of thing because you also don't have the attention span for television for the most part. No. Like there's I, very I like, few exceptions. I like television where I don't have to be paying attention necessarily. Like when the Euphoria specials came back and you were like, oh yeah, I'm so excited and things were happening and I just sat there going, fuck, do I even remember like anything from the one season of Euphoria <laughs> a year ago? <laughs> and the answer is yes, but I had to really think about it. My favorite shows tend to be ones where you don't need to have vast knowledge of the plot in order to understand things. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, there's an overarching plot, but the episodes themselves stand as their own thing. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the TV shows I tend to enjoy the most. Yeah. And that's and that's understandable. And it makes sense to me that a Choose Your Own Adventure book would be more your speed, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm the polar opposite of I... that end. <laughs> So you exclusively read books. I guess polar opposite was the incorrect phrasing for that (laughs) because I don't exclusively read books. But I do read books for fun in Mm -hmm. addition to learning things. And growing up, I was an avid reader because I was also a gifted child. And I was part of our like AR reading program. And I'm very competitive. So I read everything. Oh, I Um, cheated an accelerated reader. Oh, yeah. Because you could take the test as many times as you wanted. So you just took the test until you figured out what all the answers were and then took the test and got your perfect score? A good enough score. <laughs> like, I would just say that I read books that I didn't read because they were multiple choice. Like, I have decent chances of getting it right. You know, that's You don't that's get docked true. for getting stuff wrong. Fuck it. Let's go. <laughs> I want a pizza party or whatever the prize was. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. Um, I was definitely a scholastic book fair kid. I would save up my money and get myself Goosebumps, Fear Street, uh, Christopher Pike books, scary stories to tell in the dark. My parents actually signed a waiver so that I could get the scary stories to tell in the dark books because people were complaining about nightmares and there's a lot of overactive PTA moms. Mm. And uh, so that that was a thing. Uh, these books were huge for me because I never liked reading a lot of the same books that my friends did. Like mm-hmm. I, re- I really try not to like, not like most girls, that situation but there really weren't a lot of people around me that were reading horror books. And I was also reading them way younger than I probably should have been because I was a gifted reader. Mm-hmm. So I've always enjoyed the Fear Street books specifically because while the Goosebump books were super popular, they are definitely meant for children. Yeah. And Fear Street, I think, is like that nice transition where you're not quite into Stephen King, but you've graduated out of Goosebumps. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And they kind of blend in with the Christopher Pike craze. Um, And listeners, if you did not know, I guessed it on an episode of the Pike cast talking about The Lost Mind. So you can check that out. Plug. Yeah, you um, uh, gave me a synopsis of of the book you read for that. And that's a fucking trip, huh? (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely one of his weirder ones for sure. I have nothing else to go off of, so sure, I'll <laughs> That's fine. You. I mean, there's going to be a series from Mike Flanagan, you know, the dude behind Dr. Sleep and Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor and Gerald's Game. And, yes, more importantly, Gerald's Game. <laughs> and tons of other great stuff. Uh, he's he's in charge of a series that's coming soon, so that'll be exciting for that, all of us. That's tight. I mean, 
I'll watch any movie Mike Flanagan puts out, but then he's like, oh, Hill House is really good. I'm like, ah, it's a show, though. I have to pay attention to that, and I'm not as invested. So we'll see if I get around to this. (laughs) Well, I mean, if they're about the books, then they'll probably be like standalone episodes. Oh, I I can can do like Monsters of the Week. That sounds fun. Exactly. But we're also fantasy booking. Who knows? Um, So getting ourselves back on track here. What I really found interesting about these movies is that they are based on the Fear Street books, mm-hmm. but none of them are directly like, this movie is 100% based on this title. Okay. Instead, it's taking a lot of the themes, a lot of this, some of the characters, like Seraphir, obviously, and some of the tone of the books and a lot of the, like, the feeling you get from these books and turning them into a movie, which I think is really smart. Because, yes, you could be like, this is the Fear Street series and do an ass load of these movies forever because there's an ass load of these books. Mm -hmm. But I don't think anybody wants that. And I think that is going to set you up for failure because people are going to have really high expectations for their faves. Okay. Whereas by taking kind of the world of Fear Street and what that means and turning that into something wholly unique... I think is really, really clever. Similarly to how I really like the Goosebumps movies. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is this like how it's not necessarily adaptations of a specific story. It's more of an amalgamation of the elements that exist in this universe. 100%, yes. And that that makes sense. I think that's the smart choice for making a trilogy of films that are supposed to run in conjunction with each other. Mm -hmm. Because then you can have this finely tuned crafted thing where there's no like loose elements that it's just like, I don't know, we're through a cameo in there from a thing or something right. or, or every piece has its place in relation to this story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, that, that works for me. I, I love that they're all, they're all tied together and lead into each other. And the third one is not out yet at the time of recording. We've mm-hmm. only seen the first two. Uh, the first movie in particular is a fantastic standalone film. The second one, I think, is a little bit more of a... It, it stands on its own, but it's also kind of just a, a middle story. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm I'm going to try not to dunk on uh, 78 at any point in this one, even though I, I do think it is inferior to 94. Mm-hmm. But it's still like a, like a B-minus movie. Like, it's fine. But it's not like a high A like this one. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really want to make clear because we do kind of live in a weird cultural sphere now where unless people are like super hardcore, like I love this movie, then everyone's like, oh, so you hated it. Oh yeah. The times where I am asked about a thing and I go, oh, it's fine. And people go, so you didn't like it. I I think they think I'm maybe being polite. Mm -hmm. If I say something's fine. No, I mean, it's fine. It's okay. The the word has a a meaning. (laughs) Yeah. I chose it on purpose. I'm not Mm -hmm. just being like, I am not a person to beat around the bush. If I don't like something, I will tell you that I don't like it. (laughs) So I'm not just like sparing someone's feelings. It's just a matter of like, yeah, most things are okay. Mm -hmm. But we like to have very intense feelings of this is great or this is trash and it's ruining my childhood. Mm -hmm. 100% that. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we want to make it clear that, like, we both really did enjoy 1978, but there are a lot of elements at play that make 1994 so special, mm-hmm. and that's why we're talking about it. So before we get into those elements, let's talk about what it's about. And for this, we're going to go to IMDb because our friend Dango did not have a synopsis, but I think IMDb just pulls the official Netflix ones. Yeah, probably. sure. A circle of teenage friends accidentally encounter the ancient evil responsible for a series of brutal murders that have plagued their town for over 300 years. Welcome to Shadyside. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean that's I mean, exactly without what you giving mean. anything away. Yeah, sure, mm-hmm. totally. I think I think that's a really solid description for this movie, and it also feels like I'm reading the back of a Fear Street novel. Yeah, or it's certainly like the front or back of like a DVD mm-hmm. when you're just going through like the video rental thing, like you would in like say a Blockbuster in 1994. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so we referenced earlier the elements of why we find 1994 so important. Mm-hmm. The biggest one for me is that it's set in 1994. Yeah. Because we talk a lot about nostalgia on this podcast because ultimately that's what the teen genre is. It's nostalgia working in two layers. Mm -hmm. It's working in the sense of A, trying to strike while that iron is hot Mm -hmm. and capitalize on whatever is cool at that moment in time for teenagers who will then carry this with them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Or B, it's banking on the nostalgia that we have for our own teen experiences as adults, i.e. something like an Easy A, where although it is a unique movie that's very scarlet lettery, it's also extremely John Hughes and calls it out how Mm -hmm. John Hughes it is. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of nostalgia working. Interestingly enough, another film genre that banks heavily on nostalgia is horror. Yeah. Because horror films are obviously, I mean, everything is derivative of something. We know that. Well, yeah, there's only what, five original stories that can be told or some shit like yeah, that. Yeah, something like in, that. In like a standard three-act structure. Correct. Whereas in the horror genre, it is either people that are constantly trying to take familiar elements and present them in a new way, or people that are just writing a love letter to something that, you know, we we all grew up with and have like a great affinity for, Mm -hmm. or, you know, like deconstructing it. But regardless, horror tends to work a lot with formulas and standards and like unwritten rules for the the genre and the creatures that inhabit it. Mm Mm-hmm. So because of that, we get a lot of nostalgia movies and probably none more so than a film like this, which is a slasher. Yeah. Every slasher feels like it is either trying to pay homage to the greats that came before of like your Toby Hoopers, your John Carpenters and your Wes Cravens, or they're trying to like build upon the foundations that they have set. Mm -hmm. For the last... I would say 30 years. At least. At least. Obviously, with a handful of exceptions, the horror genre has been heavily grounded in 80s nostalgia. Oh, yeah. If you're going to set a movie that isn't necessarily in the present, you don't really get any more recent than the 80s. Mm -hmm. You might get a little bit older than that. You might get, like, the occasional period piece, something. But... Yeah, you don't you don't have films that are taking place in like the 90s or the 2000s unless maybe it's like a prequel or something. Right. I mean, there's obviously notable exceptions and there's plenty of like indie films that have toyed with different decades. Yeah. But as far as like big budget release properties, if they're going nostalgia, then they're going to go 80s. Oh yeah. And Just disproportionately law of average, you're stuck in the 80s. Absolutely. And you, you even see that in, like, modern horror films that are not, you know, supposed to be this, like, reference to the 80s or reference to the 70s. Like, I think about a movie like The Guest, which I love. It's extremely 80s but in the soundtrack so, and aesthetic. Yeah, there's so much about, like, the, the aesthetic and the soundtrack that makes you feel like, oh, this is somebody who grew up 
watching a lot of 80s movies and mm-hmm. Adam Wingard did, so it makes perfect sense. Yeah, or even this movie, which is set in 1994, it has a lot of elements that remind you of Stranger Things. Because, mm-hmm. like, that opening scene features, I believe her name is Maya Hawk, mm-hmm. and uh, she she's the cute little lesbian from Stranger Things, and this looks remarkably like the mall that is featured in the most recent season of that show. And it might mm-hmm. not be, but it's the same kind of, like, displaced-in-time mall yes. that you would see there. And so... Even this movie that has passed the 80s, like only by a few years, still kind of feels like the 80s, mm-hmm. which I think is also a symptom of like small towns in America. Everything they, they don't, feels a little bit behind. They're just a, at least a little bit, maybe half a decade behind. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it tracks. Yeah, totally. Um, but what is also so interesting, though, is that this is the first time that in a very major way the nostalgia needle is moving forward Mm -hmm. because usually nostalgia works in twenties. Like you do something like, like in the nineties, the seventies was coming back and it was really cool. Like I remember like being able to buy bell bottom pants at Kmart Mm -hmm. when I was in like fourth grade. Yeah. And then we got to the two thousands and, you know, brought the eighties back and there were already some like leaking of the eighties in the nineties. And then we've just sort of stayed there. Mm-hmm. And I now think, it's become a little more of a cultural melting pot, but there's been the most emphasis on the 80s. Yeah, and until very recently, until very very recently, and this is why this movie is so important to uh, to talk about. The reason that I think that we're still kind of stuck in the 80s horror wise is a couple of reasons. One, um, quite frankly, the people who have been in power for the last 30 years have been in power for the last 30 years. So Mm -hmm. they grew up on films from the 80s. So that appeals to them. Member Chopping Mall? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Member Death Spa? (laughs) Because these are the movies that they grew up loving, they're, of course, going to be so excited when you're like, this movie is set in 1986. They're going to be like, fuck yeah, because I remember that. You pitch them something like, this movie is set in 1997, they're probably going to be less hype about it because where were they at at their time? point of life in 1997 they were probably an adult Mm -hmm. they were probably making that adjustment from like freewheeling teen years into adulthood and working yeah and that's not as fun and then also probably cringing at the generation coming underneath them of like the stuff they were into because that's just kind of how growing up works well yeah it's like the people our age who are like how dare gen z people make fun of my skinny jeans and my side part this is still cool i'm like no you're getting old and young people want to make fun of you that's how that works Mm -hmm. there's this disparity of culture moving past you and realizing that like hey what you liked isn't cool anymore yes 100 people people are not comfortable with that and it's almost like maintaining the status quo of like no but the 80s was the coolest um what was there was this twitter thread that i kept bringing up over and over again because it just kept showing up on my feed for days and it was cringy in the worst way, but I also thought it was hilarious and I kept harassing you with it. Yeah, where, it was kind of torturous. Yes, where somebody had posted like, man, remember in the 80s when PG was like so adult, like Poltergeist was PG. Ugh, the kids today have no idea. Every, nowadays, stuff that's rated PG is practically G. And I um, I just loved reading all the comments being like, yeah, like we saw blood, we saw boobs, we saw so many cool things that in PG movies... And for anyone who's listening who isn't aware, um, PG-13 as a rating didn't exist for half that decade. Uh, yeah. So you have all these people just being like, yeah, like so hardcore, not realizing that it was only PG 
because PG-13 didn't exist yet. And if mm-hmm. it did, it wouldn't have been PG. Yeah. So you weren't a harder decade. You weren't a cooler decade full of like more gore and like adult themes as a kid. That wasn't true. You saw more because the ratings were different. Yeah. And it's just really funny to me forever that people don't take those things into account, which is why we stress the importance of historical and cultural context mm-hmm. on this show yeah. because that stuff does matter. Like if we were ever to do something like, you know, Poltergeist versus Gremlins is, you know, the the easy ones where it's like those movies are why we have a PG-13 system because mm-hmm. they are horror, but they, much like the Fear Street books, are that transitionary period between PG and R. And it does need to be there. There does need to be a, a bridge. Transitionary mm-hmm. films are super important. And that's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. We're, we're on our way to adulthood. We're, we are not girls, not yet women. That's where we got to be. The, the coming of age where you can have shit like Monster Squad mm-hmm. and it's more adult than the Goonies. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There you go. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really exciting to me that Fear Street is, is firmly set in the 90s for this first movie. I think that that is really wonderful to see. And also because if you've spent any time on TikTok just witnessing Gen Z existing – they are hardcore into like 90s fashion and 2000s fashion right now. A lot of plaid, a lot of goth. Oh, yeah. A lot, lot of scene kid coming up. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> what, what's the one that keeps showing up that makes you feel ancient? Uh, if you were a teen in 2004, I'm so jealous of you. I was born in the wrong decade. I just turn into dust every time I see that one because I, I never thought that the the cringiest part of my adolescence would ever become like a cool fashion thing. But, uh, yeah, like, the, these kids, they don't give a shit about, like, your synth score. They're going to lose their minds, though, if you have Return of, like, Return of the Mac on a soundtrack. Because yeah. they think that shit's cool. Well, it is. Return but, of the Mac's a perfect fucking song. Yeah. Like, they're, they're really hype on, like, boy bands and things that were really cool when we were teens. Like, they, they don't care about the 80s. Mm-hmm. Because that nostalgia is moving forward and it's about damn time that the movies that are supposed to be like pulling on the nostalgia strings reflect that. Mm-hmm. So this movie rules because of that on, on principle. Yeah. And what I think is so interesting about this being set in 1994, as well as also uh, 78, is that they're both just a little bit removed from the 80s. And the 1980s was never less cool than <laughs> in 1994. Yeah. It was the most hokey, uncool thing for like synthesizers like that and hair bands mm-hmm. and like these big materialistic pop idols. It was the most lame thing you could ever imagine in like cool, edgy, grungy 9094. <laughs> and I think it's so interesting that the opening to this movie. Functions like Scream, very literally. Oh, absolutely. And a point that I wanted to make is, so we're likely only going to talk about this movie as an episode. Like, this is not going to become a series where we're going to do all three of them. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is because Fear Street 1978, we've kind of already done. It's called The Final Girls. It's one of our early episodes. You can go back and check that out. Yeah. But that movie provides a very similar conversation to the one that we would have for 78, but 94 is kind of its own beast because there's really nothing like it. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, our episodes on Black Christmas and Freaky also touch on those elements of like redefining what a slasher looks like mm-hmm. because we know what 
1978's version of a slasher film looks like. Mm -hmm. It's the most obvious cookie cutter version. And you see people being like, oh, it's subverting that expectation. But so have more than a dozen movies over Mm -hmm. like the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So many movies have made that specific form of slasher. And 1994 is kind of a wild ride because you don't really know what this movie's offering for like the first 30, 45 minutes. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of elements and you don't know which way it's going to go. And that is really refreshing, especially for a movie that's targeted towards younger audiences. Oh, yeah. It's it's targeted towards an audience that likely does not have the knowledge of horror the way that somebody our age and older is going to have. And you're totally right that the opening of this is such a scream opening. Oh, yeah. Kill, kill off this character that everybody knows who seems like a big star, especially on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And kill her off in a way that is clearly an homage to Scream, including similar shots, the pulling of the mask down. It's It's so interesting because Scream itself was subverting slashers of its time and like redefining the genre and now you have this one doing it via scream and so we're getting like almost like the seven degrees from kevin bacon but we're getting one step further away from kevin bacon Mm -hmm. via slasher and it's really interesting to see now that like freaky as another example is a film that was clearly influenced by scream and to see this modern generation of slasher being influenced by the new era of slasher and not the old guard is producing these really unique films agreed completely because i've seen slashers that are paying homage a la 1978 a hundred times mm-hmm. i've seen it's set we've at a summer camp of those i've seen a remakes times. like we've seen a, a bunch of them but it's only been like now that we're starting to see this new generation of filmmakers that were really inspired by the work of like Kevin Williamson who watched The Faculty and who watched Scream. Mm -hmm. And this opening, I love so much because it plays with my, like one of my favorite elements of Scream is that Ghostface is always a fallible killer. Oh, he's such a fucking doofus. He falls down. People kick his ass all the time. I love Ghostface. I love it so much. And there's a slow-mo shot where the skull mask killer is chasing her down and they're in the mall and they're on that like cheap linoleum bullshit floor. That was freshly mopped. That was clearly freshly mopped and he stabs her and they fall and they slide across the floor. Mm-hmm. And that is such a small detail. But if this were to have been like a Michael Myers inspired or a Jason inspired, it would be like a thud. Yeah, they would You'd have go hit down that hard. ground and like she would have spit blood because she hit her head. But they're like, no, 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 we're slipping and sliding, mm-hmm. and it's gonna look kind of silly, but it is terrifying in how silly it is. Yeah, and I love that so very much. And I also love that this is a movie that opens with like in like like a practical defense system she hits him in the face with a lava lamp Mm -hmm. because they're clearly in like a spencer's gifts which is exactly how that scenario would (laughs) would happen in real life it would turn into the dead rising video game where it's like fuck it gotta kill someone with a lego head yeah because you use what you got yeah and like even going back somehow further into this movie like earlier on in the opening of this film I love that it starts in a bookstore where you have this like crotchety like middle-aged woman buying a book for her stepdaughter and our what we assume is going to be our main character mm-hmm. is like, "Oh yeah, I love this book." And she goes, "I think it's trash." Mm-hmm. That's straight up saying like this movie is telling you straight up, "Hey, if you don't like this, guess what? It's not 
for you. Mm-hmm. I love that. It feels like such an amazing, like, just rug pull of, like, you think that you have power over us? No, 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 no. And just yanking it. Yeah. And it's it's so wild. Like, okay, let's just talk numbers. Let's do a little, a little quick math right now. Quick math. Quick math. Let's think about this. Scream came out in 1996, right? Yes. That is 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. The median age of, like, someone who could have reasonably seen Scream, like, obviously people see horror movies very young. Let's say 15. Mm-hmm. That person will be 40 now. Yeah. Those are the people who are, like, the right age to be making movies. Yeah. Just think about that. How people who are 40 years old now aren't getting to make movies based on their teenage years until, like, now. That's so wild to me. Yes, that's like the fucked up math of this whole situation. <laughs> and that's why I love this movie so much because we've we hit the 80s nostalgia and then didn't move and it's like no 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 we we are we're behind. Yeah. We should be in the 2000s by now. Yeah, I mean even if you want to look at it in terms of like I, I used to buy and sell vintage and we said something was vintage when it was 25 years old. That's still 1996. Mm -hmm. Ni the 90s are vintage now mm -hmm. and some people are just like well, I don't really think that it's I, I don't want to feel old so I refuse to believe it is no like it's vintage now you're old deal mm -hmm. with it mm -hmm. nobody knows who Leaf Garrett is anymore deal with it you're <laughs> old <laughs> oh that was a good reference oh Leaf Garrett <laughs> his bandana is so cool sure I don't know sure sure him and his Brett Michaels bandana <laughs> Brett Michaels also not cool <laughs> Rock of Love, definitely not cool. Yeah, we watched it. Whatever. <laughs> so getting back into Fear Street, I also kind of want to break our structure rather than just being like, how do we feel about these characters? Because like, they, I think, will be brought up in terms of like larger discussions. Plus, they're kind of a unit. Yeah, they're an absolute unit. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about some of the ongoing themes that exist throughout this movie that I find really interesting. So the first one is the setting of where we are. We're in Shady Side, which mm -hmm. is, for all intents and purposes, the wrong side of the tracks. I think they literally do cross over some tracks on the bus. I think they do too. Yeah. <laughs> and there is this centuries-long rivalry between Shady Side and Sunnyvale. Yeah. And Sunnyvale are like our our rich preppies, and Shady Side are like kind of our rough and tumble uh, poor kids. And there's also people of color in Shady Side. Yeah. Wow. I it's wonder, a. I wonder why. It's a thing that's never said out loud, but you can see it. Mm-hmm. And I also I I like that because, as somebody who grew up in what was considered the the Shady Side, like what what's the shitty thing that they call it? Uh, Shitsville or something like Shitside or yeah something like that. Yeah, so they have like a like a gross demeaning nickname for, for yeah of the, course for the area, which as one does, and it just really kind of hit this visceral spot for me because I've I've talked about where I went to high school and I don't know if I've ever said the name, but I went to Zion Benton Township High School in Zion Illinois, mm -hmm. and there were neighboring schools near us, Zion, Waukegan, and North Chicago. These three schools made up like the primary amount of students of color in our division. Mm -hmm. Everyone else was like rich and white and had money and like it, it it was an entirely different world. And they gave us not so nice nicknames. Mm -hmm. So North Chicago was no go because you cool. don't want to go there. Cool. Uh Waukegan, which is a city that has an incredibly high Latin population, was Juan Keegan. Cute, right? Sure. And then Zion was da da da, da Zompton. 
And yes, slow clap for the originality. These kids are so fucking funny. Of these. Give them an award. <laughs> of these oh my God. Shitty rich white kids. So watching this movie, I immediately remember that like aggression they have on the bus, like after you know, Sunnyvale is super terrible to them. And you've got you've got Kate on the bus being like, let's fucking kill him. I don't think she says fuck, but she's like She definitely says let's kill him. She's like, let's kill him. And she's got like a bloody nose and she's like mad. And it's like, you know what? I remember that feeling. I remember going to these like rich ass like neighboring schools and then treat us like shit and make fun of us for being poor. Well yeah, especially because they started a fucking fist fight during like a candlelit memorial. Yeah. Like, that's how you know that rivalry is deep, where it's like, we don't even respect your dead. Fuck you. We're going to fight. We're here because we're told to be. We don't want to be. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's it's such like a, a like this weird territorial thing that I don't think movies really explore as often as I'd like. I mean, they- I think they make it seem more playful or maybe like an element of bullying- um, like, like, remember when we watched The New Guy and the movie's mm-hmm. mostly bad, but, like, that's a pretty good example of, like, a school rivalry? Yeah, that one's pretty good. Um, I also think a lot about, like, Bring It On, but in that case, like, it wasn't a matter of this is a rivalry. Yeah, the Toros were not, they, they did not see them as rivals. No, they saw them as nothing. Yeah. And then they just took from them, and, like, that, that movie is more so analyzing, like, privilege than yeah. anything. Um, whereas this movie is very much talking about like rivalry and Mm -hmm. that's arbitrarily chosen rivalries yeah and like the thing too that people don't ever think about is like how deep and long lasting those can be for some people which Mm -hmm. is like ridiculous i mean like we always there's the parody of the stock character of like the guy who was really cool in high school who like even into his 50s is like i I, I was all american i could have went pro like we have those people that exist the 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 balding man from just friends yes like man you got five dollars yeah that guy for sure that guy but in real life situations like perfect example my high school's rivals were the Warren Blue Devils. And if you went to Warren, you more than likely had money. That's not to say that there were not kids that lived in poverty that went there. I'm not trying to just like... the law of averages. Yes. I'm not trying to Statistically erase... Statistically speaking. Not erasing their experiences. I'm just saying the overwhelming majority had money because it was located in Gurney. And what does Gurney have? Six flags. What is, else does Gurney have? Gurney Mills, which at the time was like the third biggest mall in the country. Mm-hmm. So like they come from money. My dad and I went to the same high school. Obviously not at the same time. That would be weird. What what is this? An, an extremely goofy movie? <laughs> what is this back to school? <laughs> no. So, you know, we went to the same high school. We have the same alma mater. We have a lot of the same shirts and shit, whatever. My dad was in Florida before my parents retired. Florida. Florida. And there was a guy at the beach and he had like a Warren Blue Devils decal on the back of his car Mm -hmm. and my dad like tracked him down and like snuck up behind him and was like go ZBs because that was our mascot and the guy turned around like they laughed and they shook hands and it's like haha yeah that's a yeah long time rivalry (laughs) that's being playful because that's the kind of shithead your dad is exactly like he's not doing it to be vindictive but there are people who would 100% take that seriously yes there is a, a flip side I to that bleed, coin. I bleed, Blue Devil. I bleed my school colors. It's 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 like this weird, um, like 
pre-military jingoism that exists in America that I don't know if other schools have. Yeah, I I don't know. Like college rivalries are also a thing. Like the amount of times that you go to any bar in Cleveland and like fuck Michigan State is like. Oh yeah, my okay. Speaking of lava lamps and hitting killers with them, one year for uh, for Christmas we were gifted lava lamps. And I left it on all the time. It was basically like the functioning light in my bedroom. And eventually, like, the lava kind of just dies and it stops moving, just sits in an eternal glob at the bottom. Yes. So I wanted to get a new one. And the one I had was, like, it was, like, orange goo and, like, it was in purple fluid or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we went to, like, the Spencer's because, of course, where else do you buy a lava lamp? Yeah. So we go to Spencer's and I go, oh, that one's cool. Uh, Like, it was, like, blue and had yellow goo. And I was like, yeah, I want that one. My dad went, absolutely not. Those are Michigan colors. Absolutely not. It was dead serious about it. I will not have a Michigan lava lamp in my house. People are out of control with that shit. Yeah, right? It's just ridiculous. It's fucking wild. Ugh, God. And I mean, you do see that in this movie because it's, you know, the red and blue. Mm-hmm. And the shade, the uh, the shady side is, is the blue. Yeah. And uh, it, it just, it's so weird. There, like, there, there's so much weird machoism from like, oh, let's just, let's just fucking j- dump his name out there because he's a fucking dick and it's appropriate. Um, Peter. Yeah. Peter the dick. Because his name would be Peter, of course. Peter feels like he is so at home in like the fucking slay him high gang from mm-hmm. Assassination Nation. Oh my he's God. He's one yeah. of those dudes. And there's a lot of those kinds of guys. And like people... In this movie, call him a dick. They call him a monster. They call him an asshole, like, to his face. And he just kind of, like, raises his eyebrows and shrugs. And he's like, hmm, yeah, I know. Whatever. I accept it. I know. Don't don't hate the player. Hate the game kind of shit. Yeah. Oh, my God. He's insufferable. And well, it's good. He's dead. It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> Spoilers. If, if you haven't watched this yet, we're going to spoil some shit. Yeah, he gets stabbed in the tummy. And mm-hmm. he deserves it. He goes He goes down so easily. Like, there's a lot of people who get stabbed and keep walking a lot for a lot longer than he does. Yeah, because he's a punk bitch. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you brought up Peter, and he's, you know, kind of inconsequential to the storyline because... Yeah, he's the fake-out villain. Yeah, because we do have a wonderful crew of characters that we get to follow. How do you feel about about our foursome, fivesome? I can count fivesome. I mean, who do we want to start with? I guess we should start with our lovebirds, right? Yeah, let's do Dina and Sam. Yeah, so first of all, this movie's like hella queer, and we watched it once, and we were kind of just like hanging out, and you know, we were watching it and paying attention, but we were doing other things too, and Mm -hmm. it was the end of the day, so we were kind of like clearing out emails and just doing whatever, and uh, watching it on a second time, it's so obvious when they're like... Get over it, Dina. Sam's not coming back to you. And it's like, like they they pop that name so hard. It's just like, yeah, we're going to make you think this is a man by really overemphasizing the name. <laughs> You're <laughs> yeah. not going to see that this is gay. Like, I knew that it was gay going into it because friends of the show, Sam Weinman and Jordan Cruciola of the Austerian podcast, which is also back from their break. So Doing go Jennifer's check that body. out. Yeah, they just did Jennifer's body. Uh-huh. Jordan was our guest for Jennifer's body. So if you were like, hey, I love that episode and I want more of it, good news, uh, you can. Austerian, check it out. Yeah. Um, but they were both just like exploding online. Like, oh my God, it's gay. Like canonically gay. Not like subtext. Like 
It's actually gay. Yeah. So I knew going into it. So when we're watching it and they kept saying Sam like that, I was like, that's cute. I see what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. I, I got you. Yeah. And what's fun is that that's one of those instances where queer people who've had to headcanon themselves into movies the whole time, like my bat signal went off immediately. Whereas I'm sure that there were some straight people who watched this. And then when it was revealed that Sam is a girl, it was, <gasps> what? Oh. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's the 90s. Tim Allen noise. <laughs> So, also fuck Tim Allen. But, no, um, I love that not only is it queer, but it's intrinsic to the plot. Yeah. They're in love, and that's the whole thing. Like, their conflict between each other is because they're in love and they're exes, but they don't really hate each other, but they're teens, and shit's very dramatic when you're a teen. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of trying to save Sam is because you love her and because mm-hmm. Dina loves her and this whole crew wants to protect her and mm-hmm. it, it's important to the plot. Mm-hmm. So like, that's really cool. And yeah, if they hated each other, like if it was Peter who was possessed by Seraphir, they would have just been like, yeah, fuck him. Yeah, fuck that guy. Let him die. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. You, you have to give me a reason to care. And I honestly just really love this whole group of five kids. So much that I I don't know, like, again, spoilers, this is going to be your last warning. <laughs> but Yeah, this is officially your last warning. We're about to just talk about everything. All, all of the plot stuff. Um, I love this crew so much that I was not convinced they were going to kill any of them. Mm-hmm. And then when it finally happened, I was caught off guard, especially because it is one of the most visceral kills I've seen in the last several years in a horror, mo- horror movie. Mm-hmm. Because... It's Kate. She gets smacked in the face with some cake, and then she gets slammed on the tray with the bread slicer at the grocery store, and her face is like covered in stuff. So like you can only you can still see the terror through like frosting and cake, mm-hmm. and she's like rattling on the tray, and her voice is distorting because of it, and just her head goes right through it, and it's. It's. I was convinced that they weren't gonna do it, and then when it's something that intense, it's like oh fuck. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Going back to our comment about how this movie is very inspired by Scream, the amount of love that has been given to these characters feels very much like a Scream thing. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to slashers, for the most part, in the overwhelming majority, either there's one character you really care about, and that's the person who survives, your final girl. Yeah. Yeah. Or you don't give a flying fuck about any of them Mm -hmm. and you want to see them die in ridiculous, horrible ways and get slammed in sleeping bags against trees Yeah, because then you want to cheer for the slasher and it becomes just kind of like a fun, dumb, you know, exercise in hilarious violence. And then you have Scream where Scream is a slasher franchise where Ghostface like kind of like he kind of ain't shit. And sometimes Ghostface is also a she, like, respect to Debbie Salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but the core heart of the Scream franchise is not Ghostface. It's Sidney, Gale, and Dewey. And, and fuck Randy. And yeah, fuck Randy. And that is how I feel about Fear Street 1994. Like, I care so much about Dina and Sam and Josh and, like, I feel so awful when Kate and Simon die. Yeah. Because I love them so much. I, Simon is probably who I would be in a slasher movie, mm-hmm. which is, like, kind of high energy, kind of knows what's going on, might reference some movies like Poltergeist in trying to solve the puzzle. 
Um, Absolutely would reference Jaws in trying to solve the puzzle. To be fair, he was watching sharks on TV. Happy Shark Week, everyone who's listening. Uh, I think Shark (laughs) Week will be over by the time this airs. Oh, no, no. It'll still be up. It'll definitely still be Shark Week. Happy Shark Week. Go watch Deep Blue Sea 3. Anyway, (laughs) I I just think Simon is so great. He's so funny. Um, He might be a little, "Mm," you know. Yeah. Just a a little, mm. Because uh, he's uh, he paints his nails, which, you know, that's that's fine. That doesn't but also mean... in 1994, that was a very different read yeah, than it is it, today. It is. Like, it was definitely some edgy sort of 90s goth to it, some industrial mm-hmm. maybe to that. Um, he does jack off to himself in the mirror. So, you know, is Simon a little, hmm, yeah, maybe, who knows? He's feeling Whatever himself. that's... He's, He's like 17. He's experiencing things. He's he's testing some waters, maybe. I don't know. Either way, I love Simon. He's so flamboyant. He uh, tells cops to their face that they should suck it. No, he says, fuck you, pig. Yeah, like, it's, <laughs> it's fucking great. I, I love Simon. I was so sad when he died, especially because he doesn't even get, like, as cool of a death. It's, it's definitely overshadowed by Kate's because he just kind of gets axed just very suddenly, yeah. which is also tragic, but... Man, it bums me out. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I love it, but I don't love it. So that's a thing. But kind of bringing this back to the idea of how slashers function overall. I feel like we hit a point in, uh, throughout the 80s and into the 90s with the big franchise slashers, you know, your Halloween's Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Chucky, etc. Where, for the most part, you didn't care about the survivors. You cared mm-hmm. about the kills. Like, the villain is the star. That's who you pay to see. Mm-hmm. And I'm not paying to see any of the villains in this movie, even though they're perfectly fine. Uh, it almost feels like the inverse in the way that something like Scream is, where you Ghostface is cool. Like, it, it, he's, he's, he's fun. He's kind of funny. He's a doofus. He's very scary looking, though. Yes. That mask is horrific. Ghostface has a great character design. But this is almost the opposite of what you usually see in a slasher film because you have maybe one, maybe two defined characters in a typical run-of-the-mill slasher, usually like the final girl and maybe a romantic lead or something. Mm -hmm. Everyone else, you enjoy maybe in the same way that people originally enjoyed Boba Fett, Mm -hmm. where it's just like you look at someone and go, they look cool. I like them. Do they talk? No. Great. (laughs) But they look cool, and that's good enough for me. Mm -hmm. So... I, I feel like it's based on, like, caricatures, so they're very, very minimal, uh, just to, like, convey, like, shorthand what this character is to the audience in the limited time they're on screen, or you just think that they look cool, or, you know, maybe she's just really pretty and she whips her boobs out. That's a thing that happens a lot in slashers, too. There's any number of reasons that you could gravitate towards minor characters in slasher films, but this movie, again, feels like the inverse of that because... The villains are caricatures of what you expect this to be. Like, cool, um, the the Camp Nightwing slasher, whose name is Tommy, he's Jason. He's Sackhead Jason from Friday 2 specifically. Yes. Because he can run, he has a sack, whatever. Skull Mask, he's Ghostface. Mm-hmm. Ruby Lane, who is the most ineffective villain I think I've ever seen in a slasher because <laughs> she doesn't kill anyone and barely does anything in the two movies she's featured in. I, I I don't know who is she Mary Lou ish I guess maybe I don't I don't like really know vaguely Mary Lou ish but I don't also... I don't think she's based on anyone really directly. No, her her energy to me reminds me a lot of like 
like like a slasher version of like creepy kid movies because she yeah. sings. She is very like kind of playful and she's, very taunty. She's the energy of the like Freddy Krueger nursery rhyme without yes. it being Freddy. One yes, absolutely. Yeah. So like that that's fine. Um, th- those villains are cool. I don't need to see more of them. Mm-hmm. And then we get a whole movie featuring Tommy, and I don't kind of care about Tommy because it's like, yeah, you're Jason. Fucking who cares? Whatever. Jason's Jason does cool things, but he himself is boring. Yes. And again, this is a slasher movie that makes me care about the theoretical victims mm-hmm. far more than the villains. And that's the way it should be in most cases. But I think we've sort of shifted on that for, you know, uh, the side characters in slasher movies are just blood to spill. Mm-hmm. They they are meat to kill in really creative, fun ways, and we're always trying to have like this new, exciting kill. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a, an expectation for a lot of these things. Um, in in the way of like something like Happy Death Day, which is another great subversion of the slasher genre, we get to see so many cool deaths in that one. Mm-hmm. And it's because gra- it's Groundhog's Day, yeah, exactly, and it's awesome. But I, I I don't know. I just think that really lazy slashers, or or maybe more uninspired slashers don't prioritize characters more than they do scenarios. I agree with you completely. And something else that this movie does in terms of, I guess, subverting slashers that I really love is that they all have autonomy and they are all active participants in their own survival. Yeah. Uh, Frequently, you know, a lot of people love to cite Laurie Strode in the original Halloween as like, oh, she's one of the best final girls. Lori is just, like, desperately trying to survive. Like, she's in pure fight-or-flight mode mm-hmm. the entire movie. She's just kind of hanging out. Nancy Thompson, however, mm-hmm. in Nightmare on Elm Street, is an active participant. She's yeah. plotting. She's making plans. She's trying to figure out, like, what can I do to survive this? Yeah. That's what we're getting with all of these kids. And I also love that they have moments where they are shitty teenagers, where they're, yeah. like, when, when they realize that these killers want Sam and they don't really care about the other ones – they have that moment where they're like, well, it's fear to them because, like, fuck it. It's Well, no, they they try a plan first. It fails. And then they go, okay, now fuck it, I guess. Yeah, We're out of tur- ideas. It turns into the trolley experiment of, like, it's either all of us or one of us, so let's give Sam up. Yeah. And Sam does willingly, you know, she's like, I'm going to die regardless. Might as well. Yeah. Um, and then we have a uh, an experience where we find out that Tommy is really bad at cutting through doors for, like, a long time. <laughs> and it's just The Shining. Yeah, I really did love that, though, because Shelley Duvall's birthday just happened, so Mm -hmm. I went on my traditional rant of abuse is not auteurship, Mm -hmm. and I was just watching, you know, that Fear Street shot where Tommy is hitting the axe through the door over and over again, and the camera is moving with him, a la Jack Torrance in The Shining, and my, like, first thought, because my brain is just constantly being consumed by the anger that I feel towards Kubrick's directing in The Shining is like, hmm, I bet Lee Janiak didn't uh, do like 100 takes and go through 60 doors to get that shot just right. She nailed it, and uh, it looks great. Um, BJ, that's because Stanley Kubrick um, innovated that shot, so he had to work harder because there was no f- template to follow. Mm, nope, I nope, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> no, but speaking, speaking of The Shining, that is one of the movies that, specifically with how Tommy is uh, in a lot of ways, uh, aside from being Jason, like, I feel like that's who he's sort of most based on is Jack Torrance. Yeah, like, the way he carries the axe, the way he runs kind of like a doofus. Yeah, um, especially after he gets blown up and he has a limp for a bit there. Yeah. Yeah. So, even if you look at The Shining, which is technically an 80s movie, it's it's, it's still not really an 80s movie that this is paying homage to. 
mm-hmm. it's a story based on a book from the 70s. And it's still like that transition from 70s to 80s because it's not a clean break. Yeah, no. And nothing no about the does. nothing about The Shining is indicative of most horror films from that decade, really. Yeah, no, not really. So even then, it's still not paying homage to the obvious things about the 80s. It's yeah. incidentally 80s. Yeah, which I I find really fascinating. But I I love that the kids work to survive. That it's not just running and hoping for the best. That they're actually strategizing because that's realistic to me like Mm -hmm. that really is realistic i know something that i can't stand in horror movies is when it's set in modern times where like people have cell phones and people have access to the internet but then like they don't know what a zombie is or they don't know what a vampire is or any when they don't call them zombies it It drives drives me crazy bananas i hate it (laughs) like if it's a period piece maybe maybe i'll let it slide but if it's it's post like 75 there's no excuse none whatsoever absolutely not um and this movie not only allows them to be like yeah no it's like a witch or it's like a this but then they frequently reference horror movies that they have seen and know exist or there's pop culture references because that's how kids actually talk mm-hmm. and i love that i love that so much yeah and i like how in this group everyone kind of has these skills that aren't like directly pointed out mm-hmm. um like one of the most arbitrary and ridiculous skills like so remember in um jurassic park 2 where there's the really ridiculous gymnastic scene mm-hmm. where it's just like i don't know she's fucking she's good at gymnastics and we have to kick a raptor out of a window mm-hmm. like we really went out of our way to we went a long walk for a short drink of water with that yeah no all of the kids in this movie like these teens have skills that are applied but they're not beating you over the head with what they bring to the table in terms of what they're actually using like, Josh is knowledgeable about all of the serial killers and murderers and scenarios that have happened in their town and talks about it online with people, and he's the one who cracks the code. Granted, he could have just as easily been wrong, and then he seems um, quite a bit less reliable, but mm-hmm. he happens to be right here, and that's okay. Yeah, because he's following through on the conspiracy theories that exist, because what's also interesting, by setting a movie in the 90s, is that we're now dealing with communities that can talk about things outside of like these insular, this is my small town. Yes. You have access to other people. I hope that we get to figure out who Josh's online friend is in the third movie. I hope so too. Because I feel like that's that's important somehow. I don't know who it's got to be, but I feel like that's got to be important. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love that kate and simon bring together that like they're drug dealers because they're just trying to sell drugs to get out of town and josh has the best line in the movie where it's like take me with you it is the best delivery it's so perfect <laughs> it's so good but like they have all of these unique traits that they bring together for how they solve things and it's very practical it's not um it doesn't feel like hey we gave them the skill just so they could use it in the movie mm-hmm. it's hey we wrote this skill and it they found a way to use what they're good at in the movie. Like like they get into the hospital scene in order to visit Sam in the hospital, and that's where they get their drugs. So mm-hmm. they know exactly which nurse to talk to to get there. Mm-hmm. That's really clever. And then when they need to kill Sam to kind of reverse the curse, they go to the supermarket because that's where Simon works and he has access to get there. Yeah. So it they're all using what they have at their disposal. And I think that's so smart. Yeah, I love it. 
And also, I swear I thought they were going to kill her with a lobster. I thought she had a seafood <laughs> allergy. I mean, they do. They look over they to the lobster They pan over to that tank. lobster. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, seafood allergy. <laughs> I mean, that's how I would have died. All I would need to have done is let that lobster like pinch me yeah. and break skin. He's not like a bee. Like, I think you could just rub the lobster on you, probably. <laughs> you know, I've never tried, so I wouldn't know. Just lick the lobster. Yeah, if I, like, made out with that lobster, I'd be dead. Yeah. I'd be dead real be quick. Perfect. It's awesome. <laughs> but I, I do love all of all how all of this comes together, and it makes them feel like a unit because they all have a, a role, and they're mm-hmm. willing to sacrifice themselves to get to the end game there. Mm-hmm. They all run as distractions. They're all trying to protect each other. Also, um, specifically for Skull Mask, I love that usually usually someone can get stabbed in a horror movie and then they just kind of walk it off because adrenaline and plot, I guess. They're not allowed to die yet. Mm-hmm. But I love that people will block his knife in really cool ways with like a book or a muffin tray. The muffin tray is so good. The muffin tray is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So like there, there's really cool set pieces that it makes these kids seem like, oh, yeah, no, one stab is very lethal. Don't let it happen. We've already proved it. It can take down Peter as mm-hmm. opposed to people who just can get the shit kicked out of him a movie and keep getting up and walking. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's fine. I don't mind that necessarily, but it makes the stakes feel higher in this movie. I agree. Because they're kids. They're, they're more fragile, mm-hmm. I suppose. I also really like the way that the horror is sort of spread out and the tone that is set by this movie. That it's uh, fun? Is that it's fun. Yeah. More than anything, this movie is fun. Because we could go galaxy brain about this and be like, the the curse of Seraphir is really a metaphor for the patriarchy and Salem witch trials. Oh, there, there's a but, lot of but, but, like, deep stuff that you, yeah. can, you can unpack these things in terms of subtext. Like there's a lot of it that you can go to, mm-hmm. but you don't have to. Right. You. It's not necessary to your enjoyment of the movie which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that there's any sort of criticism for quote-unquote elevated horror or art house horror or any of those things. I enjoy those movies just the same. But sometimes it's really nice to just be able to talk about a slasher movie and be like, it was fun. That kill was awesome. I love this character. I love the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. That stuff is fun. Yeah. I... Uh, I- I don't know if I love this soundtrack. That is maybe my biggest criticism of this movie. And I'm not going to be that person. This, this is kind of going to be like my Last Jedi thing where I'm like, oh, I don't love The Last Jedi, but I don't love it for, but I don't dislike it for the reasons that all of the fuckboys dislike it for. <laughs> uh, I have no issues with like the anachronism of this soundtrack where people mm-hmm. are like, oh, actually that song wasn't released yet by 1994. I'm not bothered by that. I think you could have pulled plenty of cool songs from that period if you would have wanted to. Mm-hmm. The part that bothers me is that specifically the front of this movie is loaded obscenely heavy with licensed music. Mm-hmm. I counted on the second rewatch. There are eight needle drops in less than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's too much. So here's the thing, though, that I find really interesting. You are an exception to this. So don't be like, well, I also don't like this. Um, actually. Because I, I fucking know you don't like this. <laughs> but the same people who are criticizing this movie love when they do it in the craft. The craft is shot like a music video, so it makes sense for and it to look that like that. That movie is wall-to-wall licensed music. It's too much. I, I also hate it there. That's why I, <laughs> I said know. you're the exception. I know. That's that's why that's why I'm allowed to be like, yeah, I don't like it in either of these movies. But it, it feels strange. I will say there are some nicer deep cuts in this. Like some, some things are a little obvious, like Nine Inch Nails Closer or Radiohead's Creep. It's like, okay, cool. That, that's obvious. Fine. But... 
Then you have stuff like a deeper cut Porta's head mm-hmm. or, or what is that one song? Your woman. Like that song fucking rules. Um, like th- there are some somewhat deeper cuts that aren't super deep cuts, but you don't see them licensed out nearly as much, mm-hmm. which was an issue I definitely had a lot more of in uh, 78. It's part of this well, trilogy. And that's what to it me does though it. feels like the same way that Dazed and Confused does it. I know. But I think the thing that frustrates me about 78 is that all of the songs they chose happen to have really distinct use in other movies like the one from once upon a time in hollywood that was in the trailer or like moon age daydream which is used in guardians of the galaxy and it's there's plenty of other bowie songs it's not like that song was even a hit you could have (laughs) picked other ones there's i don't don't know it it bothered me that like that one was two obvious songs that are already used in other movies better Mm -hmm. than just kind of background Mm -hmm. and this one was a little bit less obvious which i appreciated but it was still way too much in the front. And then we thankfully get a, a break until I think Firestarter comes in like mm-hmm. over an hour later. Which I'm not disagreeing with you by any stretch of the imagination. I just find it very funny in my in my eyes that the same people who are criticizing it love it in movies like Dazed and Confused and The Craft, which all that signals to me. It's almost like it's nostalgia. Yeah, all it signals to me is that this is a nostalgia to like what we did in the 90s. This was a style choice. Mm-hmm. And they're paying homage to said style choice. Yeah, these are the same kind of people where I see people like, oh, yeah, punk playlist 2021. And every single song from this 2021 playlist is at least older than like 2007. Right. Where it's just like, man, when I think 2021 punk, I think Susie Sue, I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's just like, we get it. You're old. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like, that's the thing is like, we're also old. Like, we're old-ish. We're not old, old. Well, we also still, what, what is that thing that says like people stop l- seeking out new music after they're 21 or something like that? Um, I, I've seen it for different ages, but I know by the time, like, I think the latest I've ever seen is that people by like 35 stop looking for new music and just continue to listen to the same shit they always have. Yeah. And... I actively don't want to be that person because I think music is great and cathartic and enjoyable, and I would get so bored listening to the same things I've been listening to for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's why we do the shout-outs at the end of every episode for indie bands, is because yeah. we want people to continue, like, expanding their palate. Yeah, and... Because this is ultimately a nostalgia show, so... Yeah, and also, like, support independent music. Yeah, because the music industry is kind of eating itself at this point. Yeah, and it was a rough fucking year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, getting getting back on track, though, with, with Fear Street. Yes, so I have universally good things to say about this movie, other than that like first 20 minutes being a little dense. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the good things. Yeah. So going back to the good things, I really like that this is also a movie that kind of plays with latchkey kids. Yeah. Which we all know how much I love Latchkey Kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really see a lot of adult influences in this movie. And the ones that we do um, are kind of unlikable. Yeah. Like immediately off the cuff. Yeah. And that is a very teen perspective. And I like it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when you're a teen, you're like, God, mom, why are you so fucking embarrassing? Like, why don't you let me do? I just want to play on my iPod. I hate you. Mm-hmm. Like, everything's very dramatic. Everything your parents do is is like the end everything's of the world. Everything's embarrassing. Yeah, of course. 
I don't think that's the case in this movie. I think a lot of the parents are genuinely bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there's interaction between Sam and Dina where they're fighting and they are just saying the most hurtful things to each other. Because high school oh, yeah. breakups. Go for the what throat. you do. Yeah. <laughs> so at one point, Sam is basically telling Dina, like, what are you going to do? Just stay in Shadyside and become a drunken piece of shit like your dad? Yeah. And later Dina's like, yeah, that's, that's probably what would have happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's certainly what happens in, in my hometown. The downtown area of where I grew up has, last I checked, who knows what happened after COVID, but there was eight bars in four blocks. That's a lot. Yeah. It's, 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 it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need that many. No. But that's what you do. You drink or you do opioids because it's the suburbs and... That's what you do when you're a small town and you're bored, I mm-hmm. guess. And you're never going to get out, so you got to you got to get your fix somehow. Mhm. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to me because the Fear Street universe that they've sort of built here is one that exists in a bubble of just generational trauma after generational trauma. Mm-hmm. All of this is rooted in something that happened in 1666. Like, that is the the start of the, the curse of Shadyside, yeah. so to speak. But that has also influenced forms of generational trauma where these kids are frequently having to be pushed to negative extremes like, they talk about how Kate is, like, an overachiever. She's, like, on the cheerleading team. Yeah, she's, she's like, like, the most popular kid in school. Something. Yeah, and even with someone like her, she has to sell drugs in order to make money to get out. Yeah, and I believe it's said afterwards when they're doing, like, their police wrap-up, whatever it is. Um, their, like, interrogation after after everything they're, they're, when they're giving their report to fucking they're off, giving their statement that's yeah, what it's called to fucking officer good who's a piece of shit and i hate him in both movies yeah also like here's my prediction because the third one hasn't come out yet you don't name somebody nick good and it not be a reference to like goody proctor in oh, the crucible ab- absolutely like, nick's ancestors absolutely hung sarah fear yeah, he's like, the descendants of some shit yeah and that's why he feels guilty and he's like oh no i gotta be a cop so i can protect people blah, 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 yeah, blah. No, that's him. my prediction fuck cops yeah. you too nick Anyway, um, they're giving their statement to him, and they say, as he's wrapping it up, and there's no ghosts, even though he knows there's fucking ghosts and killers and there's magic, but he refuses to admit it. Dina ends up saying, like, yeah, this fits your narrative, right? Mm-hmm. That the dr- the junkies are the ones who committed these crimes because they were high on drugs, even though someone like Simon had been supporting his family since he was 15, mm-hmm. even though he's going to school and working at, like, a supermarket. Like, mm-hmm. the, the the hustle and the drive, the, these kids don't want to be a part of this. Yeah. They want something better, but they're stuck, and they're just kind of, ha- they have to play by the rules. Mm-hmm. Like, th- there, is, there is a world that they're stuck in, and they have to be a part of it, whether they want to or not, if they want to get out. And we, we sort of saw something similar to this when we did Knives and Skin a few yes. months ago, with the end of the movie in particular, where just the idea of seeing the freeway from, like, a roof. Just lets you know, like, oh yeah, there's there is an out. I can see it, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe that little hope is all you need. Mm-hmm. And I think that that falls into a really interesting conversation piece about this movie. So, like, obviously, it's very gay, and mm-hmm. we've talked about that, and especially that it's canonically gay. A criticism that I've seen people make is that they have a difficult time accepting the lack of homophobia presented in this movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's I get a little dog-eared about it too, 
because I don't fully agree with that. I'm, I'm of two minds about it. So one, I am in the positive corner. I view this very similarly to the way that I do something like Schitt's Creek, mm-hmm. where like theoretically speaking, yes, that small town should absolutely have some homophobes in it. Yeah. But the fact that it is not there allows me to appreciate a gay character whose conflicts have nothing to do with their queerness. Yeah. Like that is really it's interesting. It's refreshing, to me. isn't it? And the mm-hmm. like the very few instances where that's even a possibility like when uh, when when Patrick like has to tell his parents, mm-hmm. like it's not this big dramatic depressing thing. It's not like a a very special episode of Shit's Creek. Like it's yeah. just part of it. It and doesn't feel that. almost exploitive. Yeah. For for just drama's sake. Yeah. Um, yeah, when people say like, oh, well, there should be homophobia that they should be experiencing in this movie, like my, my, my homophobia watchdog ears perk up and I go bark, bark. Cause dude, there is, there's, there's very clear homophobia because of fucking dickhead Peter. Mm-hmm. He he calls her like a raging bull dyke, even though she's not, but he's just trying he's to just like using hurt words feelings. that he thinks are hurtful. Yeah. Like, I don't think most people know that they're queer. They're, I don't think they're out. And the people that do, outside of their friend group, are assholes about it. Mm-hmm. So it's there. What are you watching that you don't see it? Do you want more? Do you want this to be more depressing and more intrinsic to, like, man, gay teens, they have it bad, remember? Well, like, why would you want that? Well, and not only that, but there is a bit of secrecy to what they're doing. Like, they are a bit on the DL about it. Their friends clearly know. Yeah. And what I find very interesting is that Shady Side knows, because obviously Sam went to school there. They just don't give a shit because people in Shady Side have more important things to worry about, like where their next meal is going to be or yeah. how they're going to survive the multiple murders that happen all the goddamn time. Yeah. They're really not going to give a shit about what two teen girls are doing with each other. It's beyond them. Yeah. Sunnyvale cares. They care a lot. Oh, and yeah, that's because why... if you're not straight and white and cis and whatever, mm-hmm. any anybody outside that, that's a no-no. And that is why when they go to Sunnyvale to have this vigil that Dina and Sam meet, in private, away from everybody else, to mm-hmm. have the conversation where then Dina calls her out and is like, you're pretending to be something that you're not. And Sam is like, I'm doing what I can to survive. Like, she's admitting that she's an active participant in compulsory heterosexuality yeah. as a means of survival. Yeah. Because you can't be in Sunnyvale and be gay. We also get it with Sam's mom the few times that we hear her referenced or when we see her when she's picking up Sam from the police station. Mm-hmm. She clearly has a big ass problem with Sam being gay. Yeah. So the homophobia exists. It's just not part of like the central conflict. And I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. I agree. And it makes it feel so much better when Peter gets knifed that he's at a vigil and grabbing Sam's ass to prove a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. F- I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Yeah, Peter's the worst. Sucks. Peter deserves to die. He sucks. Yeah, he's toxic masculinity in a bottle. Right? He's going to grow up to be a Supreme Court justice. No, he won't. Day. He's dead. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that that's a really nice and and very thoughtful touch Mm -hmm. to this movie because it very easily could have been exploited. It very easily could have been this like weird forced tragedy porn angle to this. And it's not. I've seen that 
Mm-hmm. In, in the same way that I was like critical of 78 because it's like, oh, I've seen this kind of slasher subverted. I've seen this kind of like tragic teen story about gay kids before. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see it again. I certainly don't need to see it in this kind of movie. There's there's enough moving parts already in this film. Mm-hmm. So to defy my expectations. Mm-hmm. You're doing it all over the you're, you're doing it all the time. It's really exciting. I love it. I also love that it's taking place in a slasher. A genre that is so infamous for archetypal characters that are just kind of the the worst parts of our personalities mm-hmm. uh, just thrown into character form. And burying them gays like immediately. Burying gays immediately or making it canonic or queerness is the is the evil or mm-hmm. just just a genre that's called everybody a faggot all the time. I mm-hmm. think that I have heard more uses of the word faggot in my history of watching slasher films than like dealing with actual bigots. <laughs> Probably. And that's not great. It was the 80s, baby. Yeah. Wasn't the 80s the coolest? Don't we want to remember the 80s? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, let's remember all the fun, cool neon parts, the stuff that we put on I Love the 80s. Let's not talk about like all of the terrible shit that existed for so many people. That's the thing is that there's a lot of people who don't know that. Like, um, remember when we talked about the kids who were like, oh man, 2004 scene kid music and stuff was so cool. It's like, well, there was also stuff that it, I don't know how you'll, I'm not sure how you would process because I don't know how everyone is going to handle something like mindless self-indulgence or mm-hmm. like happy tree friends. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of ugly things see, un, un, under the glossy parts of the cultures we like to remember and reminisce on. Oh, totally. I mean, like, I always feel really bad whenever the kids are like, I'm into scene music, or I really like emo from the early 2000s. And it's I'm like, like Flyleaf. Yeah, I'm like, Flyleaf are a bunch of like terrible homophobes who like actively performed at rallies to like deny marriage equality or like, I can't ever listen to brand new ever again, even though like. Deja Tendu saved my life in high school, like literally saved my life. And I can't listen to that album because Jesse Lacey's a creep. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of like gross things that we don't like to talk about because we want to remember, we, we want to member berries the situation. Yeah. Really. And I think that's almost what this movie's kind of about, but not about that. Like Shady Side is kind of trying to focus on the good things in the present, but they're, you're just overloaded with terrible shit. Oh, totally. And I, I think it's also shady side is what was really going on for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Sunnyvale is the nostalgia we want to remember. Yeah. Sunnyvale is like the cool middle part boy band hair and all of like the fun and exciting things about being a kid in the 90s and learning about the internet. And shady side is like, look at, the outcome of the war on drugs and the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Like, it's like, wow, look at our fields of fruit that have blossomed and produced so much for us in the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. And Shady Side is Kurt Cobain singing a song about living under a bridge. Yep. 100% that. I've been saying 100% a lot, and I'm just going to address it because I know that <laughs> someone's going to listen to this and be like, what is happening? I'm having a day of of... For those who've never listened to the show before, plane stationing in which my brain damage rears its ugly head and I forget a lot of words and my vocabulary gets a lot more simple. 100%. Wow. 110%. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Leave it all in the field. Now you're cooking with gas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I really love this movie. I love the way that it made me feel. I love that I had so much fun with it, but also 
It was, it, it didn't feel like it was talking down to me. It wasn't watered down. It's a pretty intense watch. But in moments, I'm, yeah. But I'm also very invested in it. Like, I couldn't wait to watch 78. I wanted the continuation of the story. And I knew that the continuation of the story started in 1994 was only going to be like at the beginning and at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't care that I have to sit through another sl- like sleepaway camp style slasher film. That's fine. I want to know what's going on with Dina and Sam. Mm-hmm. I need to get to the bottom of that. I need to know what's going on with Josh. I need to know how he's handling things because he's, he's had a rough couple of days. Yeah. He watched the, 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 the first girl he's ever had a big crush on get her head through a bread slicer. Yeah. That's a lot. And th- there's also something really interesting, too, that this is a little bit galaxy-brained, and I'm fully admitting that. Okay. So we know that Josh is really big into conspiracy theories, which turn out to be true because they're not actually conspiracies. It's just, you know, it's supernatural. He happened to be right. He happened to be right. But he's in his little chat rooms, and... Everyone after the events of the movie are talking about it like, yeah, these junkies, they killed people at the hospital and they killed people at the supermarket Mm -hmm. and then they died and blah, blah, blah. These junkies, these junkies, you know, another shady side massacre. And Josh is like, no, I know these people. That's not who they are. Mm -hmm. They were smart and they were brave and they were my friends. And it's like this really beautiful moment. But what makes it so cool is that we're finally at a time period where what the media is saying happened versus what actually happened can finally be exposed. Uh, yeah, we saw a lot of that last year. And I think, like, we, we talked about the whole, like, the cops are going to blame them because it fits the narrative. Yeah. And then you have Josh on forums being like, no, that's not true. And it immediately kind of pinged in the back of my head how things went down with the Columbine shooters. Mm -hmm. And that the media was like trench coat mafia, Marilyn Manson, bullied, like all of these things that they thought would make for good news, Mm -hmm. but none of them were true. So then you had the people who actually knew them that Mm -hmm. weren't reporters just getting a headline because their boss told them to, being like, no, 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 they weren't part of that. They weren't the D&D kids in the Trench Kid Mafia. They also weren't getting picked on or bullied. Like, Mm -hmm. they were actually kind of popular. People knew them. You know, they were just very unstable and had access to a lot of weapons. Like, that's what happened. Ain't that America. Ain't that America, indeed. And that is something that, unfortunately, like, we are still dealing with today, where the news will paint a picture saying one thing and then you go to Twitter and people are like, that is not what happened at this protest. Mm -hmm. That's bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of cool to see a movie that's starting to play with this idea of, you know, Josh is the, the true keeper of the story of what happened. Yeah. Because we know damn well that historians have modified and altered things to their liking Oh yeah, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of that in 1666. Uh-huh. Absolutely. We're yeah. we're going to get something that is going to show us the true story of what happened and because we're starting from the end and getting towards the beginning, we're going to see how it has been telephoned throughout the years mm-hmm. and modified and changed into the legend it is today. Yeah. And uh, speaking of that, like I don't know if this is a direct homage, but it's definitely got some really similar set pieces. I really can't shake the idea of like 
say an eight-year-old, maybe, like a six-year-old, ten-year-old, whatever, like a young child, a, a pre-preteen. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of them having watched something like Paranorman, which is also hella gay. Mm-hmm. And now, years later, they're older, and now they're watching this. Mm-hmm. I want to imagine that there is a Paranorman to Fear Street pipeline <laughs> that is introducing children to horror. And having to deal with this idea of like punishing young girls and thinking that witch they're hunts? witches. And yeah. yeah, going on witch hunts and how it has an adverse effect forever. Yeah. I, I want to believe that that exists. Like as cringy as it is, the whole like we're the daughters of the witches you forgot to burn phrasing, which like I, I roll so I hard at it. I hate it so much. I know. I, I, I can't stand it. <laughs> but there is some sort of truth and power to that because it's true. Like people really were terrified of women who thought for themselves mm-hmm. and punished them relentlessly for it. And we are still dealing with the influence of those actions and those mindsets today. Mm-hmm. And that sucks. That's so shitty. And I like that Fear Street is doing that and doing it through the lens of horror. It's it's a beautiful exercise in generational trauma. And it's a it's a beautiful exercise in how systemic oppression is always rooted in something so much gnarlier than we can imagine. Yeah. I, I think that it's great. I, mm-hmm. I think these movies are really brilliant. And I, I'm going to say the other thing, which is kind of, it, it shouldn't be groundbreaking and exciting, but it is. Mm-hmm. These movies are also directed by a woman. Yeah. And like Lee Janiak also want to want to note, there is a good chance I am pronouncing her last name wrong. Okay. I went on YouTube and there were like 20 interviews that she had done either talking about Fear Street or talking about her her feature Honeymoon, which I highly recommend people check out. Rose Leslie from Game of Thrones is in it. It is awesome. It is a, is it a great movie. Um, but all these people interviewed her and they like put her name in the lower thirds, but then they would be like, hi, Lee, thanks for joining us. And never once does she say like, hi, I'm Lee, last name. Like it, it doesn't exist. So I have no idea how to pronounce her last name. And I, I did my, my research. I looked. No one else said it. <laughs> so I don't, okay. know if, I don't know if just like a bunch of people know how to say her last name or what. But uh, it just. Better silly. not be wrong, I suppose. Yeah. So I just wanted to make that clarification as well. I, I did try. I, I, I put the effort the in. I respect the brass balls on you for going ahead and saying it anyway. Yeah. But, it, you know, these movies are directed by Lee Janiak. And slasher films are notoriously misogynist. Uh, there's a brilliant book that I recommend at anyone who has even just like a fledgling interest in horror check out. And it is Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Uh-huh. And it is all about gender theory and slashers. Um, there are not a lot of slasher films directed by women. There mm. just aren't. No. And I think that that has an influence as to why I enjoy this movie so much because it doesn't it just doesn't feel yucky. <laughs> and yeah. a lot of slasher films, even the ones that I love that are just garbage trash, like I feel kind of yucky after. Yeah, no, I, I could see that. And that's kind of how this movie feels in general, where there's a lot of things that shouldn't be groundbreaking and shouldn't be like this big momentous first. Mm-hmm. But it is. Mm-hmm. It's really casual about it without mm-hmm. marketing. It's not like first time ever or one of the rare occasions where you, uh, it just kind of goes, nope, there it is. Yeah, and then really doesn't nice. address it. Doesn't doesn't address it. Just lets it breathe and just there it is. Yeah, 
It's yeah. really nice. I, I enjoy it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons that I love that this isn't like a big gay tragedy movie. Also Because love that. then it would be like, look at our gay movie. Mm-hmm. And that would be so much more the thing. And it's not. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of how this whole movie operates. And in a lot of ways, this movie feels like the slasher movie for people who don't generally get to see themselves in slasher movies. Um, it's 1978 feels like a little more obvious. Like there's a lot of similar characters, a lot more, um, a lot more white characters. Mm-hmm. This one's like, hey, here you, you got queer kids, you got people of color, you got little, little basement nerds. Just like here's all of these people that you don't normally get to see, and that's your entire cast. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. And it is cool. It is great. Big yeah. fan of it. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the last thing that I really wanted to touch on is also how inventive the way that this movie is being presented, or I guess I should say this trilogy is being presented to us. Uh Because typically, slashers are notorious for having multiple installments. Usually not planned for it. Usually not planned for it. Uh Correct. A lot lot of weird retconning to unkill the monster. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff like that. Or, you know, we can't get this actor anymore because now they're famous, Jamie Lee Curtis, and we're going to redo storylines to make things make sense. Like, Uh you know, things... The the three different continuities of Halloween. Yes. Ugh. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So... You know, that's typically how slashers are, are, are made. And a lot of times it's, we got to get one out every couple of years, or we have to make a movie, or in the like in the case of the Hellraiser franchise, we have to make a movie now or else we lose the rights to it. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of thrown together. So there's a lot of uh, inconsistencies in terms of storyline and quality mm-hmm. in a lot of slashers. And I liked that this is a planned trilogy. So something that people might not know is that when these movies were being made, so they've been in production for a while. Mm-hmm. I've known about these for a very long time, and I have been just like waiting with bated breath because <laughs> okay. I love Lee Janiak as a director, and I fucking love Fear Street. So while these were in production, uh, and these were originally a Fox property, they were going to be in theaters. Mm-hmm. And I, that likely would have dramatically changed how the movies ended for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but Fox was recently merged with Disney. Mm-hmm. And that happened in the production of these movies. Mm. I cannot begin to believe how pants shittingly terrifying it must have been to be working on a hard R teen slasher movie where they're putting the head of a cheerleader through a bread slicer Mm -hmm. only to find out that they are now owned by the house of mouse disney's not gonna ever do a a slasher movie much less hard r no (laughs) like never in a million billion years (laughs) so you know it's it it's very awesome to me that Netflix kind of swooped in and raised their hand and they're like, us, please, we, t- we take, we do, we, we, we make this. And it really does feel like a Netflix production, though, in so many ways. Like, obviously, there's the Stranger Things comparison, which is was Netflix bread and butter. It probably still is. I imagine aside that or Orange is the New Black is probably its most successful series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's so weird because this feels like long form TV. Mm-hmm. Like, this just feels like, I don't know, just like how shows run on streaming now. 
Yeah. It, I think that the way that they obviously modified this for the Netflix format is really smart. Mm-hmm. I think I think they really did a good job with it. And there is an interview with Lee at, at RogerEbert.com okay. that I want to reference a couple points that she made because they the choices were intentional and I love the mindset behind it. So Lee says, I wanted it to be scary. I wanted it to be bloody, like all of those things that exist in the Fear Street universe. But more than anything else, I wanted them to feel fun. I wanted it to be a pleasurable experience watching the movie. So even when it was also awful, I wanted there to be joy, hopefully in the pleasure of what was happening to these characters, what they were going through. That, more than anything else to me, is the spirit of the Fear Street books. They're fun to read. You don't know what's going to happen next because it could be literally anything. And that's what I wanted to try to preserve in these movies. Yeah. And I I, I love that. I think that it is just so smart and I, I I love that she she took so much care into wanting to make something unique and mm-hmm. at the same time because these are movies that are being released not all at once like we couldn't binge them all in one day which is good because I don't like to binge correct <laughs> and I, I, I for real though I love that that's the way they're going with this um I don't I don't watch these because I just don't really care about disney plus tv even though apparently it's good but i love this return that we have right now towards non-bingeable like weekly releases of shows and Mm -hmm. i think that that's really exciting for this series because i I mean i've seen a lot of people compare it to like lord of the rings or the matrix in terms of how like we're getting these like quick successive trilogies being released Mm -hmm. and this despite it being an 80s thing the way that this functions feels a lot more like back to the future for me yeah but I like that we're allowed to have room to breathe because if you just dropped all three, people would binge them all in one day and be like, man, that was cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm- then next week, no one would be talking about it. And yet people are still talking about it and mostly just gushing about how much fun they're having. Yeah, it's, it's really wonderful. And what's interesting enough, too, is that because uh, you know that there's going to be one coming the following week, mm-hmm. they were able to kind of embrace the cliffhanger aspect of Fear Street books yeah. and put them in the movie, which like if you were doing this like months apart or years apart or weeks apart, whatever, I don't think you would have been able to get away with that. And Lee mentions this in the interview with Roger Ebert.com. Obviously not actual Roger Ebert. He's... <laughs> He's He's dead. He's been long gone. (laughs) Um, But she says, the cliffhanger aspects of the books were huge. It's so fun to get to that and you're like, oh shit, I just have to turn the page or I have to click on the next movie or whatever. So I really wanted to preserve that. When we were making the movies, they were going to be theatrical with Fox and I didn't want to just cliffhanger it. I wanted to have some sort of story resolution for each movie. So in movie one, we're dealing with the kids trying to survive these killers that are coming after them inexplicably. So I wanted to be able to resolve that tension in some way, even though we were hopefully deepening the mystery. And in movie two, I wanted to focus on the sister storyline and make sure that was getting resolved, even though there's a bigger thing happening. Because I didn't want audiences to feel like, oh, you're just tricking me into buying a ticket. So that was really important. The fun of the cliffhanger and like, oh no, what's going to happen? We definitely were trying to go for that too. I love that these movies have these cliffhangers because I've just been sitting here counting down the days for 1666 to come out Uh because I want the end of the story. Yeah. It feels like I'm reading a Fear Street book and I'm waiting for the librarian to give me access to the next one. 
I can't wait for 1666 to come out so that I can make a tweet about how I might prefer it to the witch and make everyone on Twitter mad at me. <laughs> that'll be that'll be an exciting day. But speaking of the 90s, it's like so much of how this ends on like uh, almost moral ambiguity where mm-hmm. it doesn't wrap up in a nice clean blow. That's very goosebumps, mm-hmm. at least from everything I've seen in the show. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar to a lot of episodes of like, Are You Afraid of the Dark? or Courage the Cowardly Dog, where sometimes things don't go back to normal at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, they will be at the start of the next episode in like maybe a different story, a different scenario, whatever. But it leaves it on this like looming darkness sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's that's cool. That's that's the that's the energy of 90s like youth-based horror. Mm-hmm. It totally is. And I love that because of these movies, it is allowing us to have a greater appreciation for a decade of horror that was pretty universally shit on, if only because it wasn't the 80s. The 90s horror boom and especially the 2000s horror boom get trashed nonstop. And it's mostly trash because the people in power and the people of influence grew up loving movies from the 80s. And Uh anything outside of what they love must be bad. You got to love stuff from the 60s and 70s. It's classic. And 80s was contemporary at the time. This new stuff, I don't like it. Yeah. Everyone turns into old man yelling at Cloud about it. Uh And it's really nice and very affirming that this movie is speaking to generations of people who didn't get to have that experience. Yeah. Who didn't feel seen by those movies or in some instances felt harm from those movies. Mm -hmm. And this feels like taking the power back. And uh, I I know that, you know, Sam Weinman had tweeted about it, but I agree with him completely where it's like, if you prefer 1978 to 1994, that tells me everything I need to know about you. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not to say that like one's better or worse than the other. Even though it is. But but these movies are playing with such entirely different themes and perspectives that it is really telling to me. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of people that I have seen say like, well, I prefer 1978 because I don't like the characters in 94. I couldn't get behind them. And I'm like, yeah. Damn, that that sucks, bro, because those are the characters that I care a lot about that really spoke to me. I sort of don't care about the characters in 78 because a lot of them are, they feel older. I don't think they actually are, Mm -hmm. but they feel older maybe just because there's this like away from home adultness to how they like are going about just having sex and doing drugs. Oh, yeah, they're they're kids having their own hierarchies because they're left alone to their own devices without adult supervision. Yeah, so like it scans maybe a little bit older even if it isn't necessarily, but I don't like the characters in 78 nearly as much. Mm-hmm. I I actively dislike some of the characters or am actively indifferent towards some of the characters in 78 and that's not the case in 94. Yeah. In 94 even the characters that I hate like Peter that's good heat. Yeah. I hate him for the right I reasons. I hate him for all of the right reasons. Yeah. And the core group of people that we're following, I love so much and am so invested in them mm-hmm. that like they feel like those are my people. Yeah. Again, 94 is the slasher movie for people who don't always get slasher movies. Yep. Agreed completely. I think that's a really nice note to go out on. So I feel like I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Fear Street Part 1, 1994, is asking you to the prom harmony. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the note back? It is a big A-plus for me. Love this movie. 
Uh, I've seen people like Jordan Cruciola say that this was her favorite horror movie of the year so far. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I haven't actually sat down and worked on a ranking yet, so I can't really say definitively. (laughs) But if I can reference something that was said much more intelligently by someone who's probably smarter than me, former guest Vanessa Guerrero of the Kicking and Screaming podcast, they did an episode about Bride of Chucky, which Vanessa said, like, the Child's Play series is her favorite because it's the only one where she felt comfortable and safe and not like she was actively going to be insulted or harmed like how most slasher movies are towards most kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. Um, Child's Play series, the, the Child's Play series is absolutely my favorite slasher franchise. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of how this series feels. Mm-hmm. We're like... I'm 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 not bothered by the idea of like, you know, casual transphobia in a slasher movie. It happens a lot. I expect that. I'm not necessarily bothered by seeing like a lot of things that are commonplace in slasher movies. But it's nice to know that they're not there all the time mm-hmm. as opposed to always. Oh yeah, I definitely have to brace myself when I watch a movie that I love like Monster Squad because they use faggot constantly in like a very hateful way yeah like not even a playful way like a hateful way yep and uh i mean that that's not inaccurate that is bullseye for kids in the 80s that are little boys being well, mean and to that's each other the thing and like <laughs> that's where it gets hard for me is it's like sometimes i don't want to have to yeah. accept that reality you, you don't want to have to make justifications for like it would be disingenuous if they didn't call each other fags <laughs> right. like you don't want to have to do that even though that's kind of what's happening yeah <laughs> So it's really nice when you watch this that, like, that's not happening. Like, it's just yeah. it's really nice. It's a nice escape from a genre that has historically never allowed that outlet at yeah. all. And these kids are not, like, you know, sugar and sunshine towards each other. They also roast each other a lot. Yeah, because they're actually friends. And yeah. they communicate like real friends, which is, I'm going to give you shit. Especially friends in the 90s. You. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. So for sure. it feels very sincere, at least for like the kind of teens that I remember knowing growing up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, awesome. I think that takes us out on Fear Street Part 1, 1994. As always, you can support the show on Patreon patreon.com backslash this ends at prom you can also follow the show on twitter and instagram at this ends at prom you can find me at bj colangelo on twitter and instagram i also would just like to do a small plug if you did not see on social media i am one of the producers for mental health and horror a documentary and it is a documentary directed by jonathan barkan where we are exploring the therapeutic and cathartic benefits of watching horror when you are somebody dealing with trauma, anxiety, mental illness, or just plain bummers of life. And uh, we have a Kickstarter going. We're a Kickstarter projects we love. We're like the featured documentary (laughs) right now. It's great. So if you feel like supporting, that's also an option as well. Harmony, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitractor, Velocitractor underscore trap underscore tour. Fantastic. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Tidal as our theme song. We're, we're so accustomed to it that do you ever just like forget occasionally how good of a singer Willow is? Um, 
I never forget because I sing along to them constantly and I'm an actual vocalist who's taken a lot of voice lessons and Willow can do some things very effortlessly and I get very grumpy about it because I'm like, you're way younger than me. How dare this be so easy for you? Yeah, well, well like I edit the podcast. So like I edit, I edit title into our episodes. So I hear it and I go, yeah, Willow's a good singer. But then I like actively listen to the Sonderbombs recreationally and go, fuck, you're like, you can belt... And you're so expressive. Willow has such a beautiful mixed belt. It's not even fair. Like, Fuck. how dare they? <laughs> right. God damn. Like, I just felt like I, I had that moment like recently and I just wanted to kind of verbalize it for everyone listening. <laughs> That's totally understandable. Well, do you have a cool indie band that you want people to check out this week? I do. And it's kind of fitting with the theme of today's episode. I want to plug the album Death of a Cheerleader by Pom Pom Squad. Oh, hell Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to define my plug entirely by this, but if you are a fan of Olivia Rodrigo, whoever is in charge of some um, aesthetic choices for her have taken some very, very direct homages from Pom Pom Squad. Mm -hmm. And uh, this album and honestly, like just the group fucking rules. Mm -hmm. It's sad. It rocks. It's queer. I I just I just really wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. Super duper tight. Pom Pom Squad is awesome and again because nuance is dead. We're both pretty big fucking fans of Olivia Rodrigo and oh, yeah, we I'm also not... recognize that she likely does not have control of those influences into her image. So, I don't know, there's some really cool like marketing exec that's kind of a dickhead yeah and they suck yeah i'm not gonna sit here and be like oh everything olivia rodrigo does is a ripoff like no that's not what this is about and i don't want to define this indie band that i'm trying to support by that but i needed to verbalize it just for you know full completion of this um people like courtney love they can fuck off go support like new indie music amen to that amen to that (laughs) all right friends we will see you next week thank you as always for listening and don't forget save that last dance for us Bye. Goodbye. Another shady side tragedy. Fits the narrative, right? This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.